Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Good morning once again, Broussard Campus. How are you this morning? Once again, it's, it's good to be in God's house with you guys this morning. I want us to do something um, that we do once a month. It's, it's a special moment. It's a unity moment. It's a spiritual family moment. And it's when we receive communion together. We receive the Lord's Supper, the elements together. I want to start by saying you don't have to be a member of our church in order to receive communion with us. You don't have to sign off on a roll or a roster and only thing we ask is that you're born again, that you're a part of the family of God, God's family, because there's a very real sense that we are at OSC a part of the family, but we're only just that, a part of the family. The family of God extends to all of his children. I also want to explain to you, go ahead, you can start peeling it back, peel back the top layer that reveals the bread and begin the process of peeling back the layer with the juice but don't peel that one all the way back so you don't mess up your Sunday's best. Why do we do this? Why do we receive communion together? I'll tell you why, because Jesus told us to. But the reason Jesus told us to was he, he gave us the reason. He said, in as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, do this to remember me. Because I believe that Jesus knew, Jesus, when he first instituted this thing called communion, he did it when he was sitting with his followers and he was getting ready to leave after three and a half years of investing in them and being with them day in and day out. And he knew I'm going to the cross and this brand new thing is going to begin called the church that the world has never seen anything like. And I'm doing this but I don't want you to forget why I'm doing this. I've been a Christian since I was 16 years old. I'm 42. I've been around for a while. I've been in a lot of church services in my time. And one thing that I know is true, sometimes you can come in on a Sunday with the best of intentions and just, you know the system. We're gonna sing the songs, I'm gonna lift my hand. If I feel emotional, I may shed a tear. I'm going to listen to Pastor Gabe talk. Hopefully he's good this week. Hopefully he's funny, although sometimes he thinks he's funny, but not really. And then I'm going to go home. And we forget that the purpose of the gathering is for the body to come together, encourage one another, but also remember what he did for us. Everything we do here it's all built on the foundation of what Jesus did for us. And can I tell you, none of us deserve what Jesus did for us. So this is our moment. The moment where you feel like, I'm owed this. I deserve this. Why didn't this happen in my life? Just remember, we didn't deserve any of this. It's all his goodness. It's all his grace. It's all his faithfulness. So I want us to hold up the element, the, the bread, that represents the body. It represents the body. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken for us. Jesus, you endured it all. You faced it all. You were nailed to the cross facing the most agonizing of deaths. You went through the hardships. Jesus, all because you loved us and because you obeyed the Father. And I pray that for your people as we receive this, our focus and our attention would be brought back to that fact of what you endured for us. Thank you. Thank you. You didn't have to, but you did. Thank you. Receive the bread. Now peel back the layer to reveal the juice that represents the
the blood of Jesus that was shed. Now, when we say the blood of Jesus that was shed, what does that mean? What does that look like? The Bible calls this the blood of the new covenant. And I said this before, but a covenant is a very strong agreement, strongest of agreements. And the beautiful thing about this covenant, this agreement that we now have with God the Father is you didn't do anything to earn it. When this blood was shed, that's what paved the way for us to be in right standing with God. I want you to think about the very worst sin that you've ever committed. Some of you don't ever like to go back there, but I want you just for a moment to go back there. Think about the thing you're the most guilty of, you're the most shameful of, you're the most I hope nobody finds out about moment. Even that is not greater than this blood. There's nothing that you have done or could ever do that is greater than this blood. And the agreement that we have with God the Father is that because of Jesus, us full of sin and our black and dark hearts are now made clean, washed clean, and we stand before him right, righteous, and holy in his sight because Jesus shed his blood for us. Let's hold that up and let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for Jesus, for the blood that was shed for us. And Jesus, I thank you that you endured the cross. You endured it all because you saw us on the other side. And because of your blood that was shed, Lord, we come before you and have the ability to say thank you and you hear us have the ability to be clean and washed by your blood from the worst of sins. We remember you, Jesus, and we say thank you. Lord, I say thank you. You can receive. Thank you so much, Michelle. All right, you can put the elements in the pew pocket in front of you, and when you're done with that, let's give Jesus praise one more time. For all that we've done. All right. Let's dive into our sermon today. Thank you, Cody. How many of y'all love Cody? How many of you love Cody's beard? We're beginning a brand new series called The Unknowns. Let me tell you something about the Bible. The Bible is a collection of many stories. The Bible is also a giant story. Now, the difference between the Bible and the other storybooks written in our day and time or before and historically speaking is the Bible was not written so that it gives us all of like, this needs a plot twist here or this needs a tension moment here. So let me add this so that the reader gets this feel. The Bible gives us the absolute truth of these, the lives of these real people who really lived, who really endured the things they endured with lessons for us to learn. As a matter of fact, the thing that one of the, the parts of apologetics, if you will, which is the defense of the faith, is that you can use when having conversations with people is the Bible is the only real religious book or even hero story that paints its heroes in a negative light. Because the Bible just gives us the facts. The Bible just says, this is how it is. This person was incredible, but yeah, they also cheated on their wife and then killed a man to cover it up. The Bible says, this person is a hero of the faith, but they were also a very much a liar who lied to every king about their wife not being their sister. Like the Bible gives us the honest truth about these men and these women in the Bible that are the heroes of our faith. That's one of the things that it it proves the the truthfulness of the Bible because what other book would tell you all of the dirty laundry of its heroes? So we see the Bible is full of these stories and it's full of stories that many of you know. 
Men, stories like David, whom I just alluded to, or Abraham, who I just alluded to, or Adam and Eve, or, or Solomon, right, or Moses, right? We see these great stories in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see, we know stories like Peter and John and the Apostle Paul, and there's all of these great things that we can learn from these stories, some of which you've been learning from since you were a child. But there's also some people in the Bible who are not major characters, some of them are unsung heroes. Others are people who we don't know a ton about them, but what we do know, we can learn from their lives or we can learn from their mistakes. So we're beginning this brand new series called The Unknowns. The Unknowns. And I want to talk to you about some of the lesser known people in the Bible, some of the lesser known figures in the Bible, some of them playing giant key roles in the redemption story of history that you may not even know who their name is. So we're going to sing their song. We're going to tell their story in this series. And so I want to dive into that in this story this morning. But also want you to know that every one of these stories that we're going to talk about points to one key person, one key figure who is, a, who is a hero without any dirty laundry, without any weakness, and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our King. So this is what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, I want you to catch the very first words in this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. Not just the stories you know. Not just the scriptures that you have on your refrigerator. All scripture is inspired by God and is there to teach us right from wrong, to correct us, to encourage us, to build us up, but also to say, that's not right, that's wrong, or your thinking is off, or this is how God, this is how you should see things. So I'm going to do something this morning that most of us preachers don't do, and that is I'm going to tell you the punchline before I even give you the message. I'm going to give you the end. I'm going to tell you the lesson that I want you to learn. I'm not building it up. I'm going to tell you. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the lesson that I want you to get today. This is the lesson. Write it down. There is more than you see. There is more than you see. Have you ever come to a conclusion only to find out later that I wish I had known all the details? Aren't those the worst? Aren't those the worst when you step out and you're like, this is that and I know that and blah, 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 only to go, oh, boy, I feel dumb. <laughs> Have you ever misjudged a person and you thought you knew them only to, when you really find out who they are, you, you go, that's not at all what I expected. I thought it was going to be, I thought they were different. I thought they were like this. I can t answer that question for you. You all have, if you're married. Everybody you dated before then falls into that category, right? We've all been there because we assess sometimes situations before we get the whole story. We assess situations way too quickly before we understand what God is doing. There's an old Middle Eastern um, folklore story that I want to tell you this morning, and it's not the point, it's not the message, it's not the, in the scripture. We're going to focus on people in the text, in the Bible. But nonetheless, I remember hearing this years ago and thought, what an amazing point to be made. It goes like this. There was a, a village with a man who owned a very prized horse. He, this was a very expensive horse, and he loved this horse, and it was worth a lot of money. And one day, this prized horse ran away. It ran off. And so the man's neighbor came to him and he said, man, what bad luck you have. I mean, I love neighbors like that. <laughs> he said, life really sucks for you right now. You have bad luck. And the guy simply said, what do I know about these things? What do I know about luck? The very next week, the horse came back, but this time it came with a whole herd 
of beautiful horses just like it. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Last service, I didn't know what you call multiple horses. I didn't know it was a flock, and so somebody told me it was a herd, so that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> it's like a whole flock of horses. That's But it came back with a beautiful flock or herd of horses. And that same neighbor came back to him and said, man, I thought this was bad luck. You got, you've got great luck. How amazing is that? And the guy had the same response. He said, what do I know about these things? Till later on in the story, one day the man's son is training one of these new beautiful prized horses and trying to, to teach it how to be a, a broken horse and the horse reaches out and kicks the man's son in the leg and breaks his leg. Same neighbor comes back and says, man, what bad luck you have. The guy said, what do I know about these things? Two days later, a gang came into that small village and recruited all of the young men to be a part of his gang without exception. They had no exceptions, with the exception of one young man who wasn't able to join the gang because his leg was broken. What's the point of the story? Never judge it in the middle. You never know what's to come. You don't know what God has in store. Don't judge your story too quickly. I want to dive into the story of a man in the Bible who truthfully, we're not even sure if God gives us the name of this man. We're not even sure if we know his name, but I want to give you the background of the story before I tell you, before I dive into it. The story takes place in Israel. When Israel, this is fighting, they were fighting against the, Ar the nation of Aram, which is modern day Syria. As a matter of fact, some translations will tell you it's Syria, some translations will say Aram, but either way, it's still today, to this day, modern day Syria. They were at war with Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Now this is after the time of Elijah the prophet. We did a whole series on the life of Elijah. If you wanna go back, you can go to our website, oursaviorschurch.com and go back and listen to that, that whole series on this life. It was a really, really challenging, encouraging series. But this is after the time of Elijah, which means it was after the time of the wicked king in that time. His name was Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab had died and had handed the kingdom, if you will, to his son, a man, a king, a man named Joram. Joram was now the king of Israel. And his father had been hostile to Elijah the prophet. But now his son is not as hostile. Joram is not as quite as hostile. He wasn't a good man. He was still a wicked king. But his door was open to the prophet. Now, the prophet, as you remember from the story, if you remember from that series, was now a man named Elisha. Elisha was the one who came after Elijah. He took on the mantle of Elijah, and he fulfilled the ministry that God gave Elijah. So we have Elisha, we have Joram, who's the king, and they're at war with this nation called Aram or Syria. This is where we pick up the story. The king of Aram, by the way, is a man by the name of Ben-Hadad which he's also very much in the Bible after this. But this is where we pick up our story. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. This is what it says. When the king of Aram or Syria was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place. For the Arameans are, pla are planning to mobilize their armies there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. So here's the picture. Here's the story. The Syrian king, king of Aram. He's trying to defeat Israel, and he's coming up with some plans. He's coming up with some things that he thinks, this is foolproof. This is going to work. I'm going to get this. And he's trying to defeat them, but there's one problem. God keeps speaking to Elisha, who's a part of Israel, God's chosen people, and telling him Aram's plans. He keeps telling them the king Benadad's 
plans and then Elijah the prophet will go to the king of Israel, Joram, and tell him, this is what they're planning. Don't go near that place. Talk about helpful. Talk about exactly what you need to hear in order to win the war, to win the strategy. Let's keep going. The king of Aram became very upset over this. I bet he did. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor who has been informing the king of Israel on my, of my plans? In other words, who's the snitch? Where's the mole? Who's the spy? Nobody is that lucky. Nobody's that lucky to just happen to avoid the places where we're trying to attack or avoiding the situations that, and the track that I knew they were going. Now they're just changing and going in a different direction. What is going on? Verse 12, it's not us, my Lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back, Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. At this point, the king has had it. He says, if this is what's happening, listen, I'm sending a big intimidating army to go capture this man. I am tired of this. I'm tired of him ruining our strategy, ruining our plans. Let's put an end to this. So again, he, take, he gathers this big army of raiders, this intimidating army to go and capture this one man named Elisha. Can I just tell you something? That's how the enemy works. He sends big, intimidating things to get you off of God's plan for your life. He sends big, intimidating situations, big, intimidating problems, big, intimidating people to try to get you to back down and to back off of God's design and his plan for your life. That's what he does. His tactics have not changed. And here's a concern that I have for your, your culture, your society, my culture, my society. We've turned fear into something that's very acceptable. We say things like, man, I just, I mean, that's just my anxiety. Like we take this and we treat it like it's our little pet animal that we can carry around with us. We glorify our fears we relate to one another based on the things that negatively control our lives. Can I give you the truth for a moment? That's not God's plan for you. That's not what God wants for you. Stop aligning yourself. Stop agreeing with the enemy's strategy in your life. I'm, I'm never going to get beyond this. Says who? I'm always going to be fearful of big crowds. Says who? Do you know Moses stuttered and didn't even want to go obey God? I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm just, I, I deal with anxiety and so I don't like groups. I don't like people. I don't, really, I don't really trust anybody. That is not God's plan for you. Stop agreeing with it. Stop agreeing with that. Because what happens is the enemy brings these things. He brings your past experiences. He brings the issues that you're facing. He brings the problems. He brings the accusations. He brings all of those things to try to get you to back down from what God wants for your life. Do not let him. Do not let him. And this is how fear works. It starts small. It's a little pet snake that we let grow and grow and grow and to it becomes a great python that eventually wraps around us and sucks the very life out of us. That's how fear works. That's how it begins and that is the end result. It's to paralyze you, to squeeze out God's plan for your life. Don't be intimidated by your enemy. Verse 15. And here's the person that we want to talk about. But can I just say this? I want to make sure I give you the word of God on this. This is what the Bible says in 2 Timothy. God has not given you the spirit of fear. 
But he's given you power, love, and a sound mind. The opposite of what the enemy is offering you, and I'm telling you, this is the will of God for every child of God in this room. Power, love, and a sound mind. I'm not operating in that, Pastor Gabe. I just, I feel like I just, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever have that. The will of God for your life is power, love, and a sound mind. You can have that. Let's keep going. I want to talk about the, the person we came here to talk about today. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cries, or cried, excuse me, to Elijah. Let me stop there for a moment because that's who we're talking about. The Bible doesn't even name him in this situation. It just says, the servant of Elisha. Now, we're not sure, but it's very likely he was a man named Gehazi. Everybody say Gehazi. Gehazi. Don't name your son that. <laughs> if you're with your wife and y'all have been praying, what are we going to name our son? Like She's pregnant. That's not it. I'm just telling you. That was not meant. That wasn't from God for you. But his name is Gehazi. Right, that, that's Elisha's servant, or likely, excuse me, that's his name. The reason why we think that is because in the chapters previous to this, the Bible talks about Elisha's servant, and it calls him by the name Gehazi. And in the chapters after this, it calls Elisha's servant by the name of Gehazi. So it's very likely that this servant's name is Gehazi, but we're not sure because the Bible doesn't say that. But what it does say is he's a young man. So this is the story of a young man who either was recruited, chosen, or signed up for serving this great prophet. And he signs up to see some of the most amazing things that you could ever imagine. He watched Elisha do many miracles. He watched Elisha do things that would blow your mind away. That's what he chose to sign up for. As a matter of fact, just in this thing, let me just give you some of the examples of the things that this man saw happen as he served this, this man, Elisha. Just in the same chapter, Elisha is with a group of other prophets, and they're talking about prophet things. And if you don't know how prophets have conversations, they're different. They don't walk up to you and say, how are you? They walk up to you and say, you're good. How am I? That's how prophets talk to one another. And so they're having this conversation and they say, we need a bigger school for our school of the prophets. And so they say, we're going to, they say, we're going to build one. So they go and they start cutting down trees to build out of logs, this new school of the prophets, if you will. And one of them is chopping down trees when all of a sudden he loses the head of his ax. He loses the, the actual metal part off of the head, off of the stick. It falls into the Jordan River. Now, I've heard it taught that he, well, I know for a fact the Bible tells us that he borrowed that axe head. It wasn't his. And some scholars believe that he borrowed it from the government, that this was something you would borrow from the government. So it would be a big deal if you lost this. A really big deal with big consequences. And Elisha, the prophet, walked up to the Jordan River, took a stick, threw it in the water, and the axe head floated to the surface. Now, I don't know about you, I've never made metal float. <laughs> never happened. But it floats to the top. That's what happened in the exact same chapter of what we're talking about. In the chapter before that, God uses this prophet Elisha to heal the leprosy of this great warrior, a man by the name of Naaman. And Naaman was a part of one of the armies of the enemy of Israel. He was an enemy. He was a Gentile. And God still used Elisha to heal this man by telling him, go humble yourself, dip yourself in the, jo excuse me, in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. When the man finally relented, humbled himself and obeyed, God healed his leprosy. Kazi got to see that. The servant got to see that. 
And there's much more to that story, but I won't get into that. But in the chapter before that, Elisha is with a woman who's being a great blessing to their ministry, who does not have a child. And Elisha prophesies to her that you will have a child. And God gives her a son. And later on in the Bible, that little boy dies. And Elisha comes and prays for that little boy. And God raises that little boy from the dead. This is the man that this servant is with. In the chapter before that, God uses this man, Elisha, to take 12 barley loaves and some fresh grains. 12 barley loaves. Not like French bread, po' boys, like we have here. It's probably about this size, maybe. A barley loaf, 12 of them, to feed over 100 people. God multiplies that bread in order to feed over 100 people. That's top-tier catering service, if I've ever seen it. Now, if these stories remind you of someone or sound familiar, they should. Jesus. Elisha was simply a picture of what was to come in Jesus. Some of the same miracles that he did, Jesus did, but much greater. Jesus fed 5,000 with fish and loaves. So what's the point, Pastor? Why are you telling me this? The servant signed up to serve this man, Elisha, the same way that we signed up to serve Jesus. We sign up to follow him. We answer the call, come and follow me. And for a season, everything's great. I mean, you're praying for stuff and it's just all happening, right? You're asking God for people, your family members to get saved and they're getting saved. You're inviting your friends to church and they're all coming and everything is amazing. You're like praying, I'll say this many times, but you're praying for parking spots and stuff's just opening up at Walmart. The cashiers are like nice to you now and you're not even at Target. It's great until it's not, until problems start happening, until some of those same family members are now turning on you and they're accusing you of things because you're a part of that church, or you don't believe like we believe, or you, those friends, maybe five of your friends started coming to church with you, but only two of them stayed, and life starts happening, hard times start coming. Have you been there? I believe that's where this servant found himself. Everything was great until it wasn't. Can I tell you the truth about serving Jesus? You don't have to say, yeah, I'm going to. It's okay. <laughs> Last service, at least three people said yes. But when it comes to serving Jesus, you could find any, I don't want to say any preacher, you can find on many websites or TV preacher, somebody that will tell you, if you serve Jesus, everything is going to be amazing. Your life is going to be so blessed. And they may be saying that, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said things like, blessed are those who aren't offended by me. Think about that. Here's the spotless, perfect, gentle lamb of God saying, blessed are those who aren't offended by the things, the hard things that I asked them to do. Blessed are those who aren't taken aback by the things that my kingdom requires them to walk through. Jesus said things like this, in this world, you will have trouble. That's not the promise you put on your refrigerator. I've been a Christian again since I was 16, more than 25 years ago. Do I have the math right? Is that right? Okay, yes. More than 25 years I have never seen anybody have that scripture on a tattoo. I've never seen like Thug Life, John 16, 33. Never seen it. Don't be the first person to do it either. Jesus tells us in this life, you will have troubles. But he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In other words, you're going to have trouble, but you get to decide whether you're going to have trouble with me or without me. 
And when he's saying, I've overcome the world, it's the same as a tour guide saying, I'm going to take you through some tough places on this journey, but not only do I know how to get you out of it, I've gone through it myself and I know how to come out of it. I've overcome the thing that you're facing. I've overcome the accusations. I've overcome the bitterness that come, that is the temptation to come your way. I've overcome the lack. I've overcome the problems. I have overcome it all if you just follow me. The servant is following. And he didn't sign up for this part, but this was a part of it. He wakes up one day and everything in his life changes from watching Elisha do the miraculous to being surrounded by this intimidating army full of your enemy. And he's got to be thinking, Elisha is a great man and he can like multiply fish and I mean, multiply bread and stuff, but how's he going to deal with this? It's a bigger problem. And I love what the Bible says. Verse 16, don't be afraid, Elisha told him. For there are more on our side than theirs. Now, at my initial blank, can I just be transparent with y'all? This is what I would probably be thinking if I was the servant. He's insane. He's lost his mind. There's like maybe three of us in this house. And there's, prob- there's hundreds, if not thousands of them outside. I know I, I should have listened to my mom. She told me to become an accountant. I should have just gone and done that. But no. He's probably thinking he's insane. I didn't sign up for this. But Elijah says there's more on our side than on theirs. But then Elijah takes it to the very next level. And he says something so profound. And this is the whole point. This is what I want you to get. Verse 17. Then Elijah prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Here's the picture. Don't miss this. Here's Elisha, and here's his servant or servants, and here's the army around them. And then God opens up their eyes to see the army that's surrounding the army that's surrounding them. God opens up his eyes. Now, what eyes? The eyes of faith. The eyes to see beyond what your current reality is, what is presently facing you. Sometimes the only way to make it through trials is with faith. With trust in what you know that you know that you know God has promised you. It did not look like they could make it through this. It did not look like this was going to be a simple another day for Elijah to just make a decision and they were out of the mess. No, no, no. This looked like the end. But they weren't. He wasn't seeing it God's way. And all it took was a moment for God to open up his eyes, the eyes of faith, to see, wait a minute, there is more with us than against us. There's more with us. God gave him his perspective. Can I just tell you something? The spiritual reality is more real than the reality you see in front of you. Pastor, you're saying you believe in angels and demons, and you better believe I do. Without a shadow of a doubt, I do. And that reality is more real than ours. How do I know? Because it predates our reality. We're the ones who see things through skewed, marred, sinful perspectives. God sees things for what they really are. And if I could tell you anything, please don't miss this. We see the doctor's report. We see the bills piling up. We see the accusations made against our character. We see all of those things. And we quote the scripture often, no weapon formed against me will prosper, missing the fact that the Bible never tells us the weapon wouldn't be formed. It just said it wouldn't prosper. If God is for you, church, 
He's more than the whole world against you. Doesn't matter what you're facing. God plus you is the majority. God without you is the majority. You get the benefit of being with him. We're not alone. And for a moment, this servant got to see what God saw. That he was never out of control. God didn't, God didn't wake up and go, oh my gosh, what's going on with Elijah? Whew, I was focused on India. I, just, I wasn't even thinking about it. God is never out of control. He wasn't out of control in this story, and he's not out of control in yours. Again, they saw what was in front of them. God saw what he was about to do. They saw the problem in front of them. God saw what was to come. And the servant learned the very valuable lesson that day, that there is more than you see. Let's keep going. Verse 18. As the Aramean army advanced towards him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness. I love that. As Elijah had asked, then Elisha went out and told them, you have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you're looking for. Was that true? No, but I'll tell you all about that in another lesson, another sermon. And he led them to the city called the city of Samaria, which by the way, Samaria was the capital of Israel. He literally took him to the place, the, the capital city where most of the army was, where the king was, where they would be in the most trouble. Verse 20, as soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria when the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, my father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elijah replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. I bet they did. If there's a parallel or, or a little theme that you're seeing in there, you're seeing it correctly. Because God opened the eyes of a spiritually blind servant and blinded the enemy that was coming against him. Can I just tell you, in your life, in the battles that you face, this is not God versus the devil. God punches the devil, the devil punches God. That's not how this works. He is a, already a defeated foe. He's, your enemy is already defeated. Death itself is already defeated. We serve the champion. We sing that song, you are my champion, because it's true. He's already won. And we live our lives sometimes so fearful of things that are going to happen. There's a statistic out there. I'm going to tell you two statistics. The first statistic is this. 95% of statistics are made up on, on the spot. Some of you are going to get that about two weeks from now. There's another statistic. About 90% of the things that you are fearful are going to happen in your life will never happen in your life. And those things don't even have to happen. You just have to believe they're going to happen to stop you from doing what God wants you to do. The enemy comes like a roaring lion. He is not a roaring lion. We serve the great roaring lion. That's who we serve. He tries to get you to back down. Get off course. Get caught up in your feelings. Get caught up in your intimidation. Get caught up in the circumstance. Stop serving God. What's the point of going to church? What's, I mean, come on. I haven't seen things change. My mom still hasn't gotten saved yet, so why am I going to keep going to this whole God thing? You're giving up way too soon. Don't give up in the middle of the story. You haven't seen the end yet. You haven't seen what he's going to do yet. 
And I love the way Miss Michelle says it, and I've said this so many times, Michelle Aranza, she says, you never know what's on the other side of your obedience. You don't know what's to come if you'll just obey, if you'll just keep following. This servant got to see God move in front of him. God blinded the enemy that was once intimidating it. And I pray, may the God of, of Jesus, the, our, our King, our God, the God of Israel, may he blind your enemies. May he blind your enemies. Maybe you're facing fear today. Maybe you're facing intimidation. Maybe you're facing bitterness. Maybe you're facing whatever it is. But I can promise you this. There is more than you see. And there is more for you than against you. And if God is for you, he's more than the whole world against you. Elisha knew what the servant didn't. And I know for you, maybe something you don't know in the middle of your storm, that God is faithful. Yes. And he will finish the good work he started in you if you don't quit. Yes. You want to know who loses? The ones who quit. But if you keep going, you win. You win. And I want to end this morning by reading a scripture that I think is the perfect way of setting up the series that we're going to go to. There's a chapter in the book of Hebrews that is called the Hall of Faith. And it talks about the great men and the great women of God who simply trusted God in the middle of hardships, in the middle of hell on earth, in the middle of negative reports. But because they trusted God, God saw them through. And it even talks about Jesus as well. Let me go right to that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, this is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Again, what am I talking about? Living a life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Verse 2, don't miss this. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. How do you see how do you face a situation that all you see is the negative to it? By keeping your eyes on Jesus. By focusing on him. Why did Peter fall when he was walking on the water? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Why do we fall? Because we take our eyes off of Jesus. Why does our faith decrease? because we take our eyes off of Jesus. But keep your eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And then it tells us what he did. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't be very, excuse me, then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. In other words, Jesus did the ultimate. His resisting of sin and him obeying God led him physically, literally, to the point of death. None of us have had to do that yet. How do I know that? Because you're alive. Church, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. If you're struggling and you're weak, put your eyes on him. If you're discouraged and want to quit, put your eyes on him. Let God open up your eyes to see he's more than enough for me. It's more than enough for what I'm facing. If you will, please close your eyes, bow your heads as I pray for you this morning. If you're here this morning 
And I'm talking about God being with you in your storms and God with you in your trial and having a decision of choosing to go through your trials with him or your trials without him, but us facing them. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Gabe, truthfully, I know he's not with me and I'm not with him because I've never committed to follow him. Jesus said it this way. He said it to a religious leader. He said, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, which is not just heaven when you die. It's the kingdom of heaven that begins here on earth. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are first born again. That's the moment that you give your life to him. That's the moment he becomes your king. That's the moment you can see him so that you can keep your eyes on him. And that's a very simple decision. We say it's as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. That there's sin in your life that separates you from a holy God. Not I've made some mistakes. Not I'm just an imperfect person. We're all imperfect. But there's a difference between someone who just is imperfect and excuses that away and someone who acknowledges their sin before God. I'm a sinner and I'm far away from you. That takes humility. And B, you believe. Believe what? That God sent Jesus to be the solution for that problem. That the reason he died was not just for this abstract sense of for the sins of the world. He died for your sin. He died for your lies. He died for your guilt. He died for your shame to wash you clean so that you could become his son or daughter. And see you confess. Your confession is your commitment to him. That he is now Lord of your life. And that you're going to follow him. That's the commitment that you make. And you say, you're my king and I'll follow you. You died on that cross. You rose again from the dead on the third day. And now I'm yours. So if that's you and you say, Pastor Gabe, I want to be born again. I want to be right with God. I need him in my life. I want to pray a simple prayer of surrender. And I want to lead you to my very best friend in the world. If that's you and nobody looking around on the count of three, I just want you to lift up your hand and you say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be born again today. One, two, three. If that's you, lift it up. If you say, that's me, I want to be right with God. I want Jesus to be my Lord. Thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. I see your hand back there. Anyone else? Listen, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. This is your moment to be right with God. I'm going to give you one more opportunity before I pray with those who prayed. One, or raise their hand. One, two, three. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Praise God. Thank you. Anyone else? This is your moment. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Praise God. You can put them down. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud together with all of these precious saints of God. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my guilt, for my sin, for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go there. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I repent of my sin and turn away from it to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. Heaven is now my home, and I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church.